Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. And um, as usual, we are going to begin an introduction to the book of Habakkuk. So if you have a Bible, or rather turn your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. How's that? The introduction to um, Habakkuk, we want to begin, as we always do, um, giving us a good understanding, overall view, kind of a faraway look, and then we go in and look at the particulars. Um, Habakkuk is uh, the ninth minor prophet in the date chronology, if you take it in terms of dating. And the last who spoke prior to the captivity of Judah uh, to Babylon um, after Sephaniah. Now, he is different as a prophet, as we saw this morning from the others, in that he provides for us a snapshot of an often human dilemma that man has with God when it comes to his dealing with um, the affairs of the world and the wickedness the uh, misunderstanding now, God could permit such evil. How can evil exist if God created it and all those things? Um, often man forgets that the world that they see is not what God intended it, but it's the result of man's rebellion against God. It began in the garden. It hasn't stopped since. Uh, there's always those who bow their knee to God, who repent, and those who do not. And uh, the majority that bow their knee are... Um, are not the majority that are in the world. Um, Jesus speaks about the uh, small, my little flock. They asked him, well, there are many to be saved. He said, few strive, agonize to enter in. Therefore, the, what we often see is the sowing and reaping of sin and sin nature on the just and the unjust, which puzzles many at times. And uh, it angers others. But Jesus declared that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, revealing that even evil people receive certain natural benefits from God, even though they may be uh, enemies of God of the worst form. He gives health. He allows rain. He allows them certain provisions. And so we see that God, as a creator, um, is benevolent in many different ways. But he's sovereign also. So let's begin here with the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, the name um, of the prophet, again, means to embrace. And, and some of this we saw this morning. It's found only two times here in chapter 1, verse 1. And in chapter 3, verse 1. Some scholars believe that his name is of a Akkadian origin that means a, a garden plant. And um, um, Martin Luther, uh, who came out of the Catholic Church and, um, in fact, set the Protestant Reformation, is one who, he said that he is one who embraces his people and takes them into his arms to comfort and to lift them up as one embraces a weeping child or a person. Again, the prophets were called out to warn 
Um, they were to be representatives of God's message, His love, His compassion. Um, and they went out faithfully, and many of them were killed. They weren't received as, um, as those who loved the people, but in fact, counted, they, were, they counted the prophets as enemies of theirs. And yet it was to the people of God that God often sent um, these prophets. Um, only those who are embraced by God and embrace God can and will embrace people by the grace of God. And often today in this politically correct arena and atmosphere that we're living in with the whole, um, um, if you will, propaganda of diversity, um, there's always the loaded question. If God's a God of love, then why would he not love homosexuals? Why would he not love uh, lesbians? Why wouldn't he love uh, uh, transsexuals, transvestites, and all that? God's a God of love because God is holy. And God has declared that he created male and female. And God has set the order to the universe. And to try to set a loaded question like that is blasphemous. And many progressives and professors and uh, people do this, thinking they're very chic, very smart, very wise, but they're not. And so the title of prophet is in the superscription here, and it's found in uh, only two other minor prophets, Haggai 1.1 and Zechariah 1.1, with the word prophet with the name. And he is a prophet, one who, uh, again, is the mouthpiece of God, the representative. And the word, their burden, speaks of that um, load or, or, or thing that is born in heaviness, uh, often with the connotation of judgment and such as here. But the prophet uses it in the context of what he saw. The vision is what he saw. The word saw speaks about what he received from God. In other words, the content of these three chapters was not of the origin or the source of the prophet himself, even as Second Peter 1, 20 through 21 tells us that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were moved along of the Spirit of God to ensure that what we have before us is God's inerrant, infallible truth and not of any human tainting or origin at all. And so a vision begins while one is, uh, is partaking and received. When one is awake, while the dreams that we see in Scripture is while someone is sleeping. Now the name of, uh, of his hometown and family is not given. The prophet records no genealogy, no background. We have nothing at all in the internal evidence regarding this. And he is um, the sixth minor prophet who doesn't date his prophecy also in the opening, the others are Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Nahum, and Malachi. Um, these are, um, are, the, are the ones that are, are, are just like him. And again, there's a lot of tradition that is given as to his origin. But again, that's simply opinion. That's not uh, evidence from the internal aspect of the scriptures. Um, some rabbinical tradition was that he was the son of the Shunammite woman that Elijah had restored to life in Second Kings 4.16. Another said that he was a Levite. And this is in reference to also um, 
to him in the apocryphal books, the writings between the Old and the New Testament. And uh, the evidence that they used that for is what was found in chapter 3, that um, as you read there in verse 1 and 19, that he um, um, gives there a psalm or a hymn or a song, same thing, uh, to be accompanied with, on Shigenoth, uh, on a string instrument with certain temple. And you find that in chapter 3, verse 1 and 19. So uh, it may be possible that um, he was a Levite um, or of the priestly order because of this. We can't discount it. And um, many of the Psalms, as you know, were written for musical accompaniment, and they are uh, directed as such. And Asaph was the head overseer of this, and you find a reference through him through the scriptures. One particular is First Chronicles 15. Now, we know Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah were prophets in, um, who were also of the priestly line. So if Habakkuk is, then he is another one of that sort. But the usual order was that they were not of the priestly line because even the priestly line had become corrupted so often that the prophet was completely apart from them. And we saw that clearly with the prophet um, Amos, as he said, I, I was a fruit picker, I was a sheep breeder. And uh, they asked him to leave, and he says, I didn't call myself, God sent me. And so the place of the prophet is uh, among the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. And as we've mentioned in the introduction of the other minor prophets, um, there are six minor prophets prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom by Assyria, dating in 722 B.C. You have Obadiah 845, Joel 835, Jonah 765, Amos 760, Hosea 740, Micah 735. We have studied all these already. There are three contemporary minor prophets prior to the captivity of the southern kingdom by Babylon from 606 to 86. You have Nahum in 710 BC. We said at the beginning of our study of the minor prophets, but we've made an adjustment to him. I believe he's closer to 660 to 650 BC. That's where he fits better. And then you have Zephaniah 625 and Habakkuk 608. So Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk are contemporaries around the same time. Habakkuk is the eighth in order of the Mesoric Greek text and our English Bible also. But as I said in the opening statement, he's the ninth in the chronological order of dates. And so... Um, that's where he fits. There are also three minor prophets after the return from captivity of Babylon, 536 to 425. You have Haggai, 520 B.C., Zechariah, 520 B.C., and Malachi, 430 B.C. So these are the ones that we have left, those three, after we get done here with Habakkuk. So this is the prophet Habakkuk. That's the only thing we have of him. The book of Habakkuk um, has had its um, critics which have attempted to um, rearrange the order of the book. 
Uh, you have higher criticism, lower criticism, which is redacted criticism, form criticism, and they attempt to find out what is really authentic, what is not, and they go through and they, um, as if um, they are the greater authority now than back then when the books were accepted. They have denied certain portions. They have concluded that chapter 3 is not original due to the fact that it did not appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947 and 48. Some of you were with us on our trip about two, three weeks ago. We were there at Qumran. And, uh, but even their conclusions about the scrolls in Qumran now have changed. At first they believed that all the scrolls were um, produced there at the Qumran community. Now it's believed that maybe even the high priests of Jerusalem and the priests, knowing of the uh, um, destruction that was coming, um, were able to take scrolls and to hide them over there. It makes no difference. The whole thing is that they have been found and the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls is so amazing, confirming so many things, and especially the scroll of Isaiah, which is 700 years before the one that we had. And when it's examined, it's, I mean, just identical with, I think, 13 factors of letters or misspelling that doesn't change the sense of anything. An amazing evidence of God's ability to preserve the scriptures without error. But the book has no record of Jewish or Christian questioning its authority, of course, until modern times. That's where the problems come more than ever. Now, the book of Habakkuk is slightly different from the usual prophetic message in that it consists of a dialogue, as we said this morning, between the prophet and God, though there is also revelation of the mind of God as he reveals in chapter 2, and then, of course, of the future restoration in chapter 3. So Habakkuk did not speak for God to the people as much as Habakkuk spoke to God about the people. Now, the observations is that chapter 1 has two problems, and we mentioned them this morning. The wicked triumph over the righteous and God's seeming indifference and inactivity in chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. That just bugged the heck out of Habakkuk. Second, the wicked are used by God to judge his people, Judah, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5 to verse 17. The second problem of the prophet. In chapter 2, it has two promises. For the present, the just shall live by faith in the midst of evil in imperfection, chapter 2, verse 4. And for the future, the just shall live by might in the midst of righteousness and perfection in the millennial kingdom, chapter 2, verse 3 and 14. By the way, 2, 4 is a key verse, as we'll see again, of the book. The just shall live by faith. It's quoted three times in the New Testament as the key verse of the theme of that book. And we'll see this once we move along. In chapter 3, it has two proclamations. First, a prayer and praise for the present based on God's past record in chapter 3, 1 through 15. And then the personal assurance of the future, Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. 
So God takes this prophet from confusion to commitment to confidence. And all this happens through prayer. All of it. Now the content of the book, the central message for man is that the just shall live by faith alone, as I said earlier. Trusting and obeying God's word in spite of the circumstance and situation. The key verse, again, in Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38, the just shall live by faith. Each book is a doctrinal book about salvation, and it emphasizes a certain portion of that verse. Romans, the just, justification by faith before God. Galatians shall live. Hebrews, by faith. And all three books quote this passage and use it in its different angle completely. Paul quotes Habakkuk to the Jews at Antioch in Pisidia in Acts 13.41. And he applies it to the work of salvation in Christ alone and warns them to not disbelieve. He warns those who were unbelieving. And he uses Habakkuk 1.5. The central message about God, God is sovereign. God is going to use Babylon to judge Judah, chapter 1, 5, and 6. The burden, as we stated, means an oracle implying judgment. God will use Babylon to judge his people, and then God will turn around and judge Babylon for going further than God intended. He did the same to Assyria. The third chapter is considered by many to have some of the best poetry of the Old Testament. We have the books of poetry. We have some Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Job. Much poetry throughout the prophets, small sections at times. The central message to Israel is that God will establish his future kingdom in chapter 2, verse 3. And 14, this is a running, repeated theme through all the minor prophets. I don't think we've studied one that hasn't mentioned the future restoration of Israel. The nation will be restored in spite of what people say today, in spite of what the world believes, in spite of the hatred for the Jew, in spite of the hatred for Israel. God is not through with Israel, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Absolutely not. God is in control and active in world affairs. Chapter 1 tells us faith is hindered by our sight. Man is to go to God in his confusion. You got a problem with God's word? Go to God. Don't go to man. God will judge the wicked in chapter 2. Faith trusts in God's holy justice. If God is holy, then he has to judge the evil. He has to vindicate the righteous. Man is to wait upon God for an answer. Too often we're going to man when we should go to God and 
Too often, we don't want to wait on God, so we go to man. God strengthens and blesses the righteous, chapter 3 tells us. Faith rejoices in God's promises. Man is to praise God, having heard Him. When you come here, if you come here with an open heart to be instructed by God, though God is using me, though I speak, though I may bring out some things, God will deal with you exactly where you're at. And if you come to hear God's voice, you will walk out of here blessed. If you come here to hear my voice, you're going to walk away very disappointed. Very disappointed. Let me give you the contrast in the book. Faith versus sight. Pride versus humility. Righteousness versus wickedness. Gloom versus joy. Confusion versus confidence. Talking versus listening. Problems versus promises. Pleading versus intercession. Understanding versus trusting. (laughs) Great little book. Let me give you a simple division. The burden, the problem of the prophet. Habakkuk 1. The vision, the proclamation of God. Chapter 2. The prayer, the petition and praise of the prophet. Habakkuk 3. This outline is the outline of J. Sidlow Baxter. I think it's an excellent, simple division outline. Let me give you my own. Chapter 1 of Habakkuk. The confusion of the prophet expressed in prayer. Chapter 2, the perception of the prophet cleared up by prayer. And chapter 3, the revelation of the prophet revealed through prayer. Everything happens through prayer in this book. So this is the book of Habakkuk. Let me give you some historical context so we can fit him in, the times of Habakkuk. Um, The leading power at the time was Babylon. Babylon was rising as a power, having obtained their independence from Assyria in 625 B.C. under Nabopolassar, who was the father of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nahum, that we just finished, prophesied about the destruction of Nineveh by Babylon And it took place in 612 B.C. A key date is 605 when Babylon defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. Babylon came in the first siege to Jerusalem in 606 B.C. followed by 596 and 586. So this is the background of the time of Habakkuk. The reigning kings, you have Josiah reigning 31 years in Jerusalem from 640 to about 609 B.C. And you find this in 2 Chronicles 34.1. Josiah listened with a deaf ear to God. God told him not to go out to battle. He still went out. And he got killed. He finished preparing all the temple. Pharaoh Necho of Egypt came up to fight at Carchemish by the Euphrates, and he went out against him, Second Chronicles 35, 20. Necho came up against Assyria, not Jerusalem. 
He was told, why meddle to your own hurt? Listen. He was sent a message from Necho that he meant no harm to him. He warned him. That message to not meddle to his own herd is found in Second Chronicles 35, 21. So here you have a king who was loved. Josiah was a great king, great reformer. Jeremiah loved Josiah. When Josiah died, Jeremiah just wept. He lamented. But even though he was a great king, he got puffed up. And he went out when God told him not to go out. And he got killed. He didn't have to be killed. But he went and got killed. Now how does that work out? God's sovereignty, God's predestination, and my death date? I don't know. But if God tells you not to go, don't go. Simple. He didn't pay heed to the warning. He disguised himself, proceeded to the valley of Megiddo in Second Chronicles 35, 22. Again, some of you were there at the valley of Megiddo, the city of Megiddo. It's a chariot city of Solomon. He crossroad to guard the nation. Josiah lost his life being struck with an archer. He requested his servants to take him away for he was severely wounded and he died in Jerusalem, again, Second Chronicles 35 and Second Kings 23 records this for us. So Josiah, as I said, was lamented by all of Judah and Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet um, wept sorely, 609 B.C. Again, Second Chronicles 35 records that. Then you have Jehoiahaz. He reigned only three months in Second Kings 23, 31 through 34. If you were with us in our study of Jeremiah, you see the order of Josiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, and as you move on. And uh, Jehoiahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned for only three months, not a long reign. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was placed in prison in Egypt, and the land was put under tribute, a hundred talents of silver and a hundred talents of gold. And this was usually the custom where uh, foreign kings would come and they would conquer them then they would relieve them and pay taxes and they would just be a servant unto them and and that's what they would do after him you have Jehoiakim who reigned after Jehoiahaz in 2nd Kings 23 35-37 he was the brother of Jehoiahaz and his name was Eliakim but Pharaoh Necho placed him on the throne, and he changed his name to Jehoiakim in Second Kings twenty three twenty eight through thirty seven. Jeremiah twenty two also records that verse thirteen through nineteen. And he was twenty five years of age when he began the reign, and he reigned for eleven years, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Six oh nine to five ninety eight. So after Josiah, all the kings were evil. The last three, they're just evil. The date of Habakkuk's prophecy, some place in Manasseh's reign, but that appears to be too early. Others places probably towards the end of Josiah's reign that we've just described, 639 to 608 B.C., and certainly he was alive then, but I believe probably that his prophetic ministry fits best in the reign of Jehoiakim around 6 
598, when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and made him a vassal, as is recorded in 2 Kings 24. Babylon was a rising power, having obtained their independence, as we said, from Assyria around 525 under Nabopolassar. And Nahum prophesied the destruction of Nineveh, if you remember, by Babylon. And it took place again at 612. In fact, the next prophet, Zephaniah, um, he, um, he told us that God would make Nineveh desolate, showing it was yet future. And Habakkuk was his contemporary and says nothing about Nineveh. If it is because Nineveh had been destroyed, then Habakkuk's prophecy would fall between 611 or 605. And again, we can't be exact, but we can try to figure out because of the information we have. But let's just say that we could not be certain of any of these dates. Does that in any way, shape, or form invalidate the revelation of God's word of what happened? Absolutely not. And so, I'm glad we can figure some dates out and some are given to us from within the prophetic revelation, but... Uh, even if we are completely wrong, the dates are really not that important. Um, the content is important. In 605, again, Babylon defended Egypt at Carchemish and there the, the, the victory. And so again, the contemporary prophets of Nahum, Zephaniah, and you must put Jeremiah here at this time. And so the times of a nation regarding its moral and ethical condition will always be in true, a true indicator whether it is rising or dying, as Habakkuk declares. And so if a nation is immoral, if a nation is unethical, if a nation is just under anarchy, it shows that it is decaying. When a nation is rising, it has, uh, it has uh, vision, it has direction, it, it has a semblance of order. It's, it's striving to, to get its nose above water. But it seems that once they get to a certain point, they just go downhill because of the pride, because of the abundance, because of the, they fall apart from within and then they're conquered from without. And so these were the times of Habakkuk. Now, it's only three chapters. Let's take a cruise through um, Habakkuk here. Um, the message of Habakkuk, again in chapter 1 here, verse 1 um, to verse 17, you have the introduction of the book in verse 1, the burden, the oracles, again, that's affiliated with judgment. The prophet is the mouthpiece of God. Uh, again, the prophet Habakkuk is distinct in that he dialogues with God. He has a difficult time with uh, um, his seeming inactivity and also um, with God using Babylon to uh, destroy and to judge his own people. Um, so he's not so much delivering a message of prophecy as much as talking with God to resolve the problems in his own mind. And um, again, his name means embrace, indicating his need to embrace God so he can come to understand exactly what is confusing him so much. 
The prophet's first complaint, as we saw this morning, was seeming indifference of the activity in chapter 1 here, verse 2 through 4. His complaint is that God is not hearing his cry against the violence. That um, Why is he not intervening? His impatience is marked by the phrase, how long, in verse 2. Much like the martyrs in the book of Revelation under the fifth seal. How long, O Lord? And God says, kick back. There's more to be killed before everything's fulfilled. Won't you avenge our blood? His perception of God is that he's not saving the righteous. And so he asks why God allows him to see all that evil in verse 3. In effect, he's blaming God as we pointed out this morning. He is indirectly saying that he was more sensitive than God. But if you remember Jeremiah, around the same time period, stood at the house of the Lord and denounced the spiritual evil that they wanted to kill him, Jeremiah 26, 1 through 11. So God was doing something. He was using Jeremiah inside the city. So once again, the prophet is speaking in error. Just because I don't know what God is doing doesn't mean I have the right to accuse God what I think he should be doing. Jeremiah said the repentance was superficial, if you remember the sermon in Jeremiah chapter 7. You guys are saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You know, God's not going to destroy the temple. God says, hey, through Jeremiah, he says, you're dead. He's going he's to destroy this whole city. You women are going to eat your children. The devastation is going to be so much, the famine, the horror of it. Amazing. He declared the consequences was that the law was powerless in chapter 1, verse 4. Justice is never carried out because the wicked outnumber the righteous. They're constantly twisting the law and bringing forth crooked and corrupt judgments. From verse 5 down to 11 of chapter 1, God answers the prophet's first complaint and tells him that he's not only aware, but he's bringing the Chaldeans to judge Judah. God's work is in effect, though unknown to man. In this case, Habakkuk, verse 5, he declares what he's doing. The verse is quoted again in Acts by Paul, Acts 13, 40-41, for those who would disbelieve Jesus as Messiah for salvation. God's instrument of judgment was to be Babylon, whose character is bitter, hasty as a nation, verse 6 says, they're arrogant, verse 7 says. They are destructive and merciless, verse 8 says. They conquer all, verse 9 says. Now go back to the book of Daniel. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the head of gold, the arms and shoulders of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the ten toes of iron and clay. Babylon, absolute dictator. Nobody could question his authority. Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the two legs, the Ten-Nation Confederacy at the end. A big gap of time so far, 2,000 years, between Rome and the last empire of the Antichrist, the Ten-Nation Confederacy. 
And so God is working. God is working through Daniel, through Ezekiel at Babylon. God has his people. God's in control. In verse 10 of chapter 1, they are proud and invincible. The Babylonians will raise dirt mounds next to the city walls to climb the walls. Scary. Those of you who were there at Masada, as we were on top of Masada, in the last rebellion, now they built the mound up the side of Masada to push the ramp and they used Jewish slaves. And then the hundred or so individuals committed mass suicide, robbing the Romans of their victory, leaving only a few women and children to give the testimony. Josephus gives us that information. And so, in verse 11, they give credit to their idols. You remember Belshazzar took the vessels of God, of gold and silver, the temple, and he praised the idols of gold and silver in chapter 5, and he saw a finger of God written on the wall, meany, meany, tickle you farce, and you've been weighed, and you've been found a lightweight. You are dead tonight. <laughs> Trusting idols. In chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, the prophet's second complaint in his confusion regarding God, using a more evil nation to chasten and judge his own people. A problem for Habakkuk. Knowing God was holy, he couldn't reconcile him using a more wicked nation than his people. He says, we shall not die. Yet, you have marked them for destruction for Babylon, right? It's always the rationale, right? Why would God judge us? We're not as bad as someone else. doesn't matter if we're worse. What matters is are we for God or not? If a nation discards God and turns its back on God and goes against God, what responsibility does God have to provide and defend that nation? Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. Chapter 1, verse 13, knowing God cannot condone evil, how could God use this and do this? This reminds us of Peter when he rebuked Jesus for proclaiming his death and resurrection in Matthew 16, 22. And as soon as Peter had said, you know, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you, Peter, but my father in heaven. And, and he probably looked to the other 11 or to the other two there on the Mount of Transfiguration. See there? When he did this, not Mount Transfiguration, but down in uh, Caesarea Philippi, which we also went. And, and, you know, thinking he was spiritual. And then right thousand of a second, you know, Jesus says he's going to die and he takes him aside, says that he rebukes him because he says, over my dead body, so to speak. And Jesus says, you know, get thee behind me, Satan. You do not discern the things of God from the things of man, of Satan. So one minute, God is using Peter to reveal who Jesus is. And then Peter thinks he's going to straighten Jesus out. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. We can go from the spirit to the flesh in one thousand of a second. When God doesn't act according to our reason or understanding, we seek to become confused and 
childish at times, thinking that we know better than God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, Lean not to your understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your paths. Chapter 1, 14 through 17, the Chaldeans were cruel in their warfare. By the reflection and torture of the people they took, verse 14 and 15 will tell us, by the ascribed worship of their gods in verse 16, and by their ongoing lack of pity in verse 17. Now, many today do not believe that God would use other nations to judge the United States. On what do you base that? Your feeling, your opinion? I've got more evidence in Scripture why God is judging and should judge America. If I know my Bible. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 20. God will judge the wicked. In verse 1, the prophet re resolves to wait upon God with a contrite heart. He would stand as his watch and set himself in the tower. As a watchman, he would do so with the intent and purpose to see what God would answer him. He would do so to know what to say to God, knowing he was wrong in his assessment of him. He knew he was wrong because he knew the nature and the attributes of God. And he was having a difficult time putting them both together and seeing the violation of it. But God is sovereign. Verse 2 down to 5 of chapter 2, God answers the prophet's second complaint. Evil will not always prevail and that the believer lives by faith knowing he waits for the future kingdom and righteousness. Living by faith means I believe what God has revealed, whether I understand it, whether it makes sense to me. I embrace it as absolute truth. In verse 2, God answers the prophet a second time. The prophet is commanded by God to write the vision clearly. In verse 3, the prophet is told the nature of the vision. Vision is for an appointed time in the future, verse 3 says. The vision will come to pass at the end of it. It will be the last days. And the vision is certain, though it tarry, wait. For it, for it will be fulfilled. It will surely come, says in verse 3. You see, patience is essential for life in the Spirit. Absolutely. James speaks about that. Verse 4, the prophet is given God's kingdom principle. The proud are not upright in themselves. The just shall live by faith in God's revelation. This was Martin Luther's battle cry for the Reformation, as you know. It is quoted three times again in the New Testament, as I pointed out. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11, 6 says. Faith always should point you back to the revelation of God. It's not a gut feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not your opinion. It's based on, the, on God's inerrant, infallible revelation of his mind and his will recorded in the scriptures. And so the greed and unsatisfied life of 
Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar is declared. Those who are evil and everything in verse 5 of chapter 2, the Babylonians. Now, Nebuchadnezzar repented. I expect to see Neb in heaven. He was a hard nut to crack, but God cracked him. Not by force. In verse 6 through 19 of chapter 2, you have the woes of God regarding the wicked. We have five woes. Some are very clearly addressed to Babylon, while others could be applied to Judah. Six and through eight, their dishonest gain is the first woe. The pledges were the deposits for security greater than needed, being capitalists, but capitalists in an evil way, unjust, unfair. Verse six. The retribution will come to them, verse 7 and 8 tells us. From verse 9 to 11, their covetous gain is the second woe. In verse 9, to those who enrich themselves dishonestly to secure their safety. Verse 10 and 11, to those who give evil counsel that destroys them. Their oppressive ruling is the third woe. In verse 12 through 14 of chapter 2. In verse 12, those who establish themselves in authority through blood and iniquity. Verse 13, those who do so, do it in vain. Verse 14, the Lord will ultimately be the ruling authority in the kingdom age. Here we have it again. The kingdom age is repeated over and over again through the minor prophets. And yet, there are Christians who believe that there is no millennial reign. There is more material on the millennial reign than anything else as we went through our series on it. If you remember, it's amazing. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain. Who built it? Psalm 27, 1 says. Then in verse 15 through 17, their drunken sexual exploitation is the fourth woe. Those who seduce people through alcohol, verse 15 of chapter 2. Those people will be punished by God for being perverse and treacherous, verse 16 and 17. Then their idolatry is the fifth woe, verse 18 through 19 of chapter 2. They can't talk or hear, Habakkuk 2.18 says. If you remember Psalm 115, 4-8, they have eyes, they can't see, they have ears, they can't hear, they have hands, they can't handle, they have feet, they can't walk. And those that worship them become just like them, blind, deaf, dumb, and crippled. <laughs> now, if you're an ex-Catholic, you're familiar with idols. And how sad that you have to put your little idol up there and the earthquake comes and it falls off the mantle and breaks his neck and you got to put some crazy glue on him and put him back up there. Well, he should start praying to you. God hates idolatry. Completely. They are lifeless idols, verse 19 says of chapter 2. Remember Elisha at Carmel said, maybe he's sleeping about Baal. First Kings 8, again, we were there at Mount Carmel. We 
did the scriptures there. Haifa's behind our back. We're in the Catholic convent monastery there, looking over the whole Jezreel plain there from the ghetto. And Jeremiah condemned idolatry. Jeremiah 10, 3-16, and so many of the prophets. In chapter 2, verse 20, they are in contrast to the Lord, these idols. The Lord is alive and well-ruling and is in control from his holy temple in heaven, and all should be silent before him, verse, uh, uh, or Isaiah 6 tells us. And here again, um, the implication being that no evil person will escape eternal judgment, though they uh, seem to escape the consequences in this lifetime, no one will. When you come to chapter 3, verse 1 through 19, God strengthens and blesses the righteous. Verse 1 and 2, the prophet's prayer of intercession is given to us. Verse 1, the prayer is ascribed to Habakkuk. The prayer is a liturgical psalm or a hymn or a song on Shigenoth. The meaning is uncertain, but it's believed to be set with string instrument as declared in verse 1 and then 19 also. Um, and there it also that he's probably associated with being a Levite or of the priestly orders, one way or the other, uh, associated with the temple worship. In verse 2 of chapter 3, the prayer comes. He acknowledges hearing God's voice, resulting in fear, which is good. He began haughty and cocky, and now he's humble, which is good. His petition is threefold. Notice, he, to, to revive his work in the midst of the years, literally keep alive, to execute his plan as revealed, and to remember mercy and wrath. So the prophet ends up in intercession for the people of God that he's praying for. Verse 3 through 15, the prophet's praise of God for his power and involvement in world affairs in man's history is given to us. Verse 3 through 6, uh, the future return of Christ. Here the prophet reveals the coming of Christ to set up the kingdom, um, yet uses God's past events dealing with Israel. Um, the Holy One comes from Timon, Edom, there in verse 3. Um, Isaiah 63 tells us that also. His glory covers the heaven and the earth, full of his praise at his return, verse 3 tells us. Remember Solomon's temple was filled with the glory of God in 1 Kings 8, 11, that the priests had to run out. No one could stay there. In verse 4, the brightness and power are seen. Moses' face shines. Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, Exodus 34, Matthew 17. And his coming is preceded by judgment and pestilence in the Great Tribulation, which is marked in chapter 3, verse 5. So you have a short-term, you have long-term dealing here in this last chapter. The coming will be about the judgment of the nations, verse 6 of chapter 3, which takes us to Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. The fear of all will be seen, verse 7 says. And then you have the past judgments of God, verse 8 to 15. God's past acts, perhaps referring to the days of Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. And verse 8, God was displeased with man, not creation, but uses creation 
in his judgment. God judges by an oath, verse 9. God did so at the flood, Red Sea, in the Jordan River, verse 10. God intervened for Joshua, verse 11. And God destroyed the people of the land of Canaan, verse 12 through 15. Now from 16 to 19, the prophet's proclamation of faith and trust in God for joy and strength, in spite of the coming judgment, is given to us because he fears the Lord here. In verse 16, his response in view of God's past judgment. Habakkuk heard the past judgments of God and feared and trembled in reverence. He is like Isaiah in fear and in awe. Woe is me. Habakkuk could rest now in God's plan and judgment, trusting his ways in verse 16. Then in 17 through 18, his repentance was in view of Israel's judgment. 17, God would be a man of faith, or Habakkuk, I'm sorry, would be a man of faith, believing God, though he, uh, the present evidence was to the contrary, verse 17. So he's believing what God is saying is going to happen, even though he doesn't see it now. Though the fig tree bud. And as he goes on to say, Habakkuk would rejoice in the Lord and God of his salvation, not in the situation any longer. Verse 18, the prophet has come a long ways. His resilience strains through judgment by depending on God is revealed in verse 19. He would draw from God's strength in 19. He would be an overcomer as a deer hitting the high places and not be tripped up. The prophet is a model to us. He began his prayer of complaint in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He moved to a prayer of confusion in verse 1, 12 through 13. He responded with a prayer of contrition in chapter 2, verse 1. And he ends up with a prayer of confident intercession in chapter 3, 1 and 2, 18 and 19. Wow. Let me leave you with some lessons that have been noted by many people who have studied the book of Habakkuk. The prophet begins in gloom. He ends in joy. The prophet begins confused in prayer, ends in confidence because of prayer. The prophet begins by talking to God, ends by listening to God. The prophet begins with a problem and he ends believing God's promises. The prophet begins pleading judgment, ends interceding for revival and mercy. The prophet begins not understanding the work of God, ends up trusting the ways of God. And the prophet begins hopeless and ends up with great hope. <laughs> Three little chapters. Incredible. When's the last time you heard a sermon on Habakkuk? Nobody teaches on Habakkuk. Are you kidding me? Have a what? What an incredible, incredible prophet. This 
was the message of Habakkuk. And so as we move through it, in the next two, three weeks, you'll have a better handle on the book of Habakkuk. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for tonight. And we pray, Lord, you just continue to instruct us. And Lord, as we just read it over and over again, as we allow your spirit to minister to us, that you would give us insight for our own lives, Lord. I praise you, Lord. I thank you for every person here. And we lift everybody here to you, Lord, of those who are over the internet. If there's anyone who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would just bow their knee to you as you have ministered to the heart of your love and your grace and how you want to make them alive, Lord, and forgive them. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the internet. Right where you sit, you can accept him. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins, rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father, ready to make an intercession for you, and that he's coming back again as Lord of Lord and King of Kings, then you can call on his name, and he will forgive you of your sins, and he will give to eternal life, and he will make you his child by grace through faith. If that is your decision, this is a prayer of repentance that you can pray to the Lord, not to us, to him. And he will not disappoint you. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.